cheated not only the game, but yourself. You didn't grow. You didn't improve. You took a shortcut and gained nothing. You experienced a hollow victory. Nothing was risked, and nothing was gained. It's sad that you don't know the difference. Dad, I was just reading Spark Notes. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Backstage Gaming, a dramatic takes on your favorite games. I'm Chris. And I'm Dylan. And if you can't tell from our weirdly on-topic for us in intro bit... On-topic, uh, like, a week and a half after it was Yeah, we're, we're late to the party because we're dumb. We record our uh, episodes in advance. Yeah, and in the future, maybe we'll be able to do it closer to the release date. Um, but all right, all we have to do is we have to predict something before the controversy <laughs> happens. So let's right now let's actually edit this out. <laughs> let's record an episode in advance about a video game streamer using the N word. <laughs> <laughs> Just create a mummy's tomb for some popular yep. internet celebrity to wander happens, into. The second it happens, all right, we rub our hands and we drop that episode <laughs> like it's hot. It doesn't even matter if it's Monday. Dude. Welcome to our honeypot. <laughs> oh my god, I'm not, I'm not cutting that. Are don't, you kidding? Don't this cut is that gold. Out. Actually, I really like that because um, I didn't say a specific YouTuber, so no, people can't. Hate somebody, me. somebody, somebody. Uh, it'll, it'll happen, y'all. Uh, anyway, <laughs> this week we're gonna be talking. We're not gonna be talking about the. Using the word debate feels generous to what Twitter has been doing recently. The <laughs> but, finger pointing? Yeah, the shit pile that is the current argument over game difficulty. Because, like, we're going to engage with it slightly, but this isn't an episode isn't about, about that. that. No. Um, instead, we're going to be talking about some examples of what we have listed in our uh, episode doc as gaming extracurriculars, which are things that some games ask you to do outside of the actual play of the game. And uh, sometimes don't ask you to do, but like it's another element that makes the game fun. Yeah. So we're going to we're going to be talking a little bit about that and using it as sort of another lens through which to view the crux of this argument. We will be getting on that. It's not going to be a downer of an episode. We're mostly going to be talking about like weird exterior game, like weird games and like not even the points of the games, but like weird moments in games that just ask you to like kind of put on a different kind of thinking hat yeah. um but yeah we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about ways that games ask you to do outside work or sometimes just require it of you without so much asking the idea that crystallized this topic in my head was we were we were having like a session to just chat about like what are some cool things that we could maybe spin an episode out of and like a bolt of lightning from the distant past <laughs> i just had this memory of on like the pre-Pentium shitty desktop that my dad had when I was five playing Zork. For those of you that don't know, Zork is an old text-based adventure game. It is a very early game from back before graphics or even a GUI graphic user interface were like a thing that most computers could do. And it is all relayed to you in text. So the game begins with like, you are in a clearing. The sun is shining overhead. There is a small cabin to the north and woods extending to the east, west, and south. And then the way that you interact is you type things like go north, 
go east, look at door, open door, light torch, pick up candle, look at map, things like that, and then the game will narrate back to you. And it's a very cool game, and it's like, as weird as this is, I kind of miss text-based adventure games because they just require you to think in like a slightly different way, and I mm-hmm. get why they're not a thing anymore. Because, <laughs> like, why would they be? Yeah. But I think they're interesting, and, like, I was thinking about Zork, and Zork gets wild because there's, like, a whole island practically to explore, and, like, you go down into caves, and you have to, like, manage different puzzles and, it like, find things. It sounds like a really things. cool game that I really wish, like... I played when I was young and had, like, the time and patience for that sort of thing. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In a lot of ways, it reminds me of things like Myst, but again, all in text. Yeah, Uh, the theater of the mind, as they say. Yeah, which presents an interesting challenge when you get to one area of the game and there is a labyrinth. Like, you go in and it's just like, you're in a cave. You entered from the south. There are passages leading to the east, the north, and the west. And you type, go in one of those directions, and it gives you, you are in a cave. You Like, say you type, go west, it'll be like, you entered from the east. There are passages going south, north, and east, or south, north, and west. And you have to just, like, try to find your way through a maze that you have no visual information on. And the only feedback you get is, like, you fell down a hole. You died. (laughs) (laughs) The only way... That I found when I was playing this game, and I want to remind you, I was five, (laughs) is I found some graph paper, and as I was going, I would, like, write on the graph paper next to the mouse pad, and, like, draw out the map as I created it by typing through, and then when I hit a point that killed me, I'd mark, like, a big X in that square, and slowly and painstakingly, over the course of hours of trying, I finally, like, lucked in in a combination of luck and knowing where not to go, made my way to the end of the maze. And on the one hand, that's terrible. (laughs) Like, that's bad game design. Not saying, like, the people who designed Zork are bad game designers, just, like... The standard, or I guess rather what is acceptable in games nowadays is not that. (laughs) Yeah, and to be fair, there is a Zork 2... There are no mazes in Zork 2. They learned from that mistake. <laughs> so, like, at least to my memory, I could be misremembering that. But, mm-hmm. like, I'm not saying this is, like, they are bad game designers. Just, like, that is, on the one hand, kind of unforgivable to make something that is that impossible to succeed on without lengthy trial and error. Yeah. On the other hand, when I completed it, that was, like, the most accomplished my little five-year-old ass had ever felt about anything. <laughs> mom, mom, I did it, I did it. <laughs> and my mom was like, that's nice, Chris, and then went back to doing important adult things. Um, all this is to say, I can see, to, to, to touch on this debate that we're sort of, like, skirting the edges of. Yeah. I get where the, like, difficulty makes it rewarding side argument is coming from because yes yeah overcoming a challenge that you have put a lot of effort into is cool and is rewarding and is very like a very good thing it's fun to share those stories of overcoming adversity even if the adversity comes from a very you know either hard or poorly designed depends on the game depends on the situation but like a hard or poorly designed hurdle in a game exactly However, just because somebody finds that fun doesn't mean other people aren't going to hit that point of a game that they have been enjoying otherwise and say, fuck this noise, I'm really disappointed I don't get to see how this pans out. 
Mm-mm. And that sucks. Like, people should be able to enjoy games. To For those of you who are not deeply invested in Twitter arguments over gaming, the, the debate that we have been alluding Honestly, to is that... Honestly, good for you. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, wish I, I wish I was so lucky. Um, but <laughs> the recent From Software game Sekiro, Shadows Die Twice, came out and is being critically lauded, and a lot of people are very much enjoying it. But because it is a very difficult game, because From Software has sort of developed for themselves this reputation for making games that are very difficult, though the important distinction here is that Sekiro and all of the Dark Souls games are difficult but fair. (laughs) For the most part. (laughs) The Dark Souls games, like, yes, there are cheap deaths, but they are games where, like, the more you play and the more you learn the systems, the more you can avoid those cheap deaths, and they're, they're... very few deaths in the Souls games, and in what I have seen of Sekiro, I've not played it yet, but I'm it's like high on my list of games to buy very yep. soon. They're the kinds of games where like there are very few deaths that are not learning experiences. Yeah, Dark Souls wants you to learn through failure. I feel like there's ignoring Dark Souls, there's like this idea where it's like if I can't make it through this situation on the first time, like the game's being cheap. And well, that might be true, like, I also think it's important to consider, like, how does the game kind of circumvent the penalty of death? Like, yeah. how does the game encourage you to keep playing to try and push farther? Yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll probably get into that a little bit further on, but the debate right now is that a writer for a game site put out a, an opinion piece basically just saying, like, I love Sekiro, I love the design, I love the aesthetic, I love the setting. I have not been able to beat it because... I do not respond in the same way to this level of difficulty and this style of gameplay loop. And I'm disappointed that that is, like, preventing me from being able to experience the story. I wish that this game and others like it had an alternate setting to tone down the difficulty and to allow people who either don't like it or who are are differently abled or who are, for whatever reason, not going to play the game at its default difficulty setting to also experience the story. Mm-hmm. And that led to a, a trash fire on Twitter. Um, a lot of people came out in defense of the game, arguing that... I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. Fuck it. I guess we're talking about this now. Oh, boy. All right, here um, we go. <laughs> I, agree, I, I agree with the point, with the position of that writer. I agree that there should be options for difficulty settings. I'm not even going to call it easy mode, because I feel like that language cheapens it. I feel like there should be options in games to increase accessibility, full stop. Yeah. That existing is not going to take, like, a lot of people were arguing that, like, making something like Souls or Sekiro easier is tampering with the artistic, what's the, what's the, the term that's been being used and annoying me is uh, the gamers authorial really intent. saying authorial, yeah, artistic intent. <laughs> yeah. And saying that, like, you know, these games are about the difficulty, and if you take that away, you're not experiencing the game in the way that the author intended. Another important thing is also just, like, you know, as much as I love games as art, and, like, the way games can express themselves artistically, video games are still a commercial product. (laughs) Yeah. If your authorial intent prevents people from consuming your art... That's bullshit. Yeah. I don't think it is their authorial intent. I don't think that is a... I do not believe that that is something that From Software is after, but, like, to pin that on them is terrible because no no artist wants to prevent people from seeing what they make. And if they do, then, like, that's... I would argue that's not great art. Yeah, that's, that's gross. <laughs> Item two, adding a, like, 
like an assist mode like you see in uh, in Celeste or a story mode like Iconoclasts doesn't take away the, the, the quote-unquote intended difficulty. That's still going to be there if that's how you want to experience the game. Yeah, I honestly think, like, you know, no one's saying, like, make... Sekiro's default difficulty and unlockable after you beat it the first time on yeah, easy. Yeah, no, no one is arguing for that. It This is emblematic of a lot of gross gatekeeping tendencies in the gaming community. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's been a lot of people I've, see, I've seen siding on the side of like, yeah, no, accessibility is good. Make games with easy modes. Or, again, fuck that language. But make games with more accessible difficulty options. Make games with options, yeah. 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 Options are never a bad thing. Case in point, I we've talked a lot about Iconoclast. Iconoclast is a great game. I played it on its default difficulty setting when I when Dylan and I lived together and I was playing it on his PS4 and had a great time and also experienced some moments of like controller bit snapping of salt. frustration. <laughs> Little what? bit of salt. Oh, a ton of salt. Just a uh, healthy dose of sodium. Healthy, healthy. My sodium levels were were delightful. Uh, but <laughs> I like that kind of challenge like i am able to engage with that i've played enough games and, like i cut my teeth on like the fucking teenage mutant ninja turtles nes game which was oh, all cheap deaths. <laughs> so like there's a part of me that like for better or worse like that kind of salt drives me i'm very much the 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 target audience for from software you should listen um, to him play league oh it's true <laughs> <laughs> um that has gotten better i've learned to care less <laughs> which is also good um, but I've also recently wanted to like return to Iconoclast and play it again and re-experience it for the story now that I've played it once and want to just like be able to take in what the game was doing and I've been playing it on I want to say they call it story mode mm-hmm. uh, which basically just makes like enemies do almost no damage to you yeah. and I've been having a great time because this time like I'm just doing it to re-experience all of the charming dialogue and spend more time in this world and with these characters. And, like, if I was someone who didn't like difficult gameplay, I would be having a great time on this as my first playthrough of it. Basically, all this comes down to my opinion on this whole thing is don't yuck someone else's yum, let people play games. <laughs> yeah, no, I think... And, you know, there there are some games where I've, like, I've had to turn it down on easy. I think one of the most recent examples in my mind is uh, the remake of Resident Evil 1. I love Resident Evil 2, both the remake and the PS1 original. For whatever reason, the remake of Resident Evil 1 stresses the hell out of me. (laughs) It's like, it's to a point where, like, all the things that I like about this series are there, but they are, like, too effective. So I need to take the edge off, and I think that's valid. I think, you know, you can enjoy the philosophy of the combat of Sekiro, but still think that... And I knew we I, we said we weren't going to talk this much about Sekiro, but I guess we're here now. So yeah. it's worth jumping onto, even though we're late and this take is lukewarm. And we've never played this game. Like full, I'm changing full that as soon as I possibly can. Yeah, I need uh, it in my life. It looks so fun. Full disclaimer: uh, I'm, I'm talking more about the discourse and my experience with oh, games, yeah, same. more so than with Sekiro. I withhold all judgment until I play the game myself. But I, yeah, I guess to to drive it back to like the discourse about like playing games yeah uh resident evil one is a game that is really good is has really fun puzzles you get a great wave of relief when you when a puzzle clicks and like you finally made progress while navigating these hallways of zombies and worse creatures (laughs) 
But, like, you know, you get that sense of relief on the default difficulty because your ammo pools are more limited and more bullets are needed to kill zombies. But maybe also just play the game on easy mode and have that same feeling of relief, but, like, without the fear that you are going to screw yourself over. Yep. (laughs) And then, like, maybe once you know what lies out in advance, you can start planning ahead next playthrough. I think that's also an important thing to consider. Maybe people who play Sekiro... Maybe the standard difficulty has is like, you know, it's good and they like the idea and everything that goes in it, but maybe it's just like a level too high for them. Yeah. Uh, so like maybe they need it on an easier difficulty where the consequences aren't so severe. Yeah. And or, or hell, mm-hmm. consider the place that like a lot of people are and kind of myself included at this point in my life where like. I have a day job and a bunch of other projects and the amount of time I can spend in any given day playing a game is not as long as I wish it could be. And so, like, as much as I like the idea of playing Sekiro, there's a part of me that's like, I'm going to get this game and I'm going to have, like, 30 minutes a day to play it. I'm going to spend all 30 of those minutes, like, trapped in small bits of, like, dying and restarting and that's not going to be fun. And, like, think about if you're, you know, a little further on into a different stage of life than we are and, like, what if you've got a job and kids and, like... all I'm saying is, like, there's no reason not to give people the option to enjoy a game at a level, at whatever level they can handle it at, for whatever reason that is necessary. What if you're a games journalist and need to play a lot of games to meet a quota in addition to writing articles and editing videos? Yeah, but then you're writing about the wrong version of the game. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, um, I mean... Yeah. We, we, we talked for a lot longer about this than I think we intended to. Let's transition into the rest of the topic is sort of about games that ask you to do things that go a little bit above and beyond, but do not require it of you. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that is an interesting sort of counterpoint because it demonstrates a way that like a game can be more difficult or more engaging in a matter of difficulty without requiring that of you. Um, yeah. But before we get into that, we're shaking up the format a little bit. We're going to introduce a new section into the show. Uh, we've been doing all of our like plugs and things at the end, but we are like slowly but surely amassing more and more things to plug. So rather than doing those at the end, where like some people, let's be real, are going to skip over it, um, <laughs> we're going to do a little plug. Let's call it the let's call it the playbill because that's what you hey, get when you go to a show themes. that talks about what the actors do. Uh, we're going to call it the playbill, and every week we're just going to do like a quick five-minute, like, here's some other things we're working on, here's the plugs we want to throw out, that way it's out of the way, and then when we wrap the episode, we can just do a nice quick wrap-up. Sound good? Yeah. Sound good. Cool. Sounds um, good to me, Chris. So Thanks, Dylan. Um, <laughs> so this week, plugs that need to go out. Dylan, you've got an exciting one. Yes, yeah, so me and Chris, our mutual friend Coop and I, we have start. I made it sound like Chris was involved. Me and mm. Coop. Yeah. I'm started... not involved in this project. Yes. Uh, we've started a new podcast called Dude, You Remember Macross, which is a retrospective, half retrospective, because I haven't actually seen Macross before. I've seen its American dub, which is very different. Um, <laughs> but we are we are looking at an old 80s mecha anime and hopefully maybe other shows from that same franchise. Um, and, you know, we watch three episodes a week and then we get together and talk about our impressions and our takes on the characters and stuff like that. It's a it's a really chill show. Um, if you have any interest in 
80s anime, mecha anime. We we tried to talk a little bit about, like, Japan culturally in the 80s, like, from our very limited Americans in the 2010s perspective. <laughs> but, you know, just, like, what we've heard from Hearsay and what we've seen from other shows, uh, just kind of, like, doing a cool little cross-reference and uh, talking about a show we both love. Yeah, and it's I, I listened to the first episode the other day. It's very fun. Y'all should go check that out. Where can they find that, Dylan? So I know for a fact that we are on Anchor, anchor.fm slash dude you remember that is d-u-d-e and i feel like we have we have a facebook page i know that there's also a twitter we also have a twitter account but i don't think our episodes are being hosted anywhere else right now you should also check out continue to give some love to our friends over at the unexplored places podcast uh they are a super fun actual play podcast dylan is in the arc i think the arc you were in like just wrapped up I yep, say. it just wrapped up, and now I am, I'm going to do an interlude episode tonight. So yeah, I, well, and I'm tonight be as of this recording. Yeah, we are we are both now going to be involved in some of the stuff they're doing moving forward. Uh, not currently their like main show, but some side projects and interlude stuff. So so if you can't uh, stand the sound of my voice, but you love Chris's dulcet tones, now <laughs> you have reason to watch. Yeah. <laughs> no. Come with me. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, you should totally check them out. They have also got a new Patreon going. Look up Unexplored Places on Patreon. Show them some love. You should also go check out Unwell, a Midwestern Gothic mystery. It is a spoopy audio drama podcast that I am very minorly involved in, but the whole show has been super fun. Uh, I did not actually get most of the script, so I've been listening through it, and it's been really fun and very, like surrealist and very good they are currently six episodes into their first season i appear at the tail end of episode eight for a fun little one-off that i got to record and it was like an absolute blast everyone involved in this project has been super cool uh so go go give them a listen and one more big announcement for this week's playbill our first playbill uh we are launching a patreon for backstage gaming who knows if it's gonna work but (laughs) you know open a patreon before patreon gets bullshit yeah, there we go. But in all honesty, like we're we've been having a ton of fun doing this podcast. Clearly, we have other ideas with just like we're working on other podcasts. Dylan just started another podcast. I've got other podcast projects I want to do. Uh, and so we're going to turn to you, the listeners, and say, hey, if you like what we do, if you like the takes that we have on things, if you want to see us able to do more work, consider supporting us. Obviously, if you can't or if, you know, you're not in a position to do that. No hard feelings. We're Honestly, poor actors. We get it. <laughs> I think you should just check out our Patreon page for this picture of me groping Chris alone. Yeah, it's it's delightful. Uh, I have a very smug look on my face. Chris looks like he's in heaven. It. I was. So, uh, <laughs> you know, when you see this picture, you will make either of those two faces. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, check us out. We've got a def- bunch of different rewards, uh, things like... Uh, I set up a Discord server so that we can sort of start to foster a community of people who want to think more about their games, want to think more about storytelling. We're going to have things like bonus blooper episodes. There's going to be monthly Q&A sessions for high-paying patrons so you can actually just, like, talk to me and Dylan over Discord once a month and just ask us whatever the fuck questions you have on your mind. Uh, Plus, we've got some goals for things like paying for episode transcripts because, boy, howdy, when I said I was going to have time to do that, I was a liar. Um, and getting more podcasting projects off the ground. So, you know, we're here hat in hand. If you want to help us out, if you like what we're doing, consider dropping a couple bucks in and, you know, hopefully you'll get something out of that too. We really, really appreciate it. And 
we'll keep this nice and short and let you get right back into actually listening to what you came here for. So thank you. All right. Thank you for coming along with us to the playbill. And now let's get back to the action. The next thing I wanted to talk about a little bit with regards to this concept of like gaming extracurriculars, things that the game allows you to do beyond the call of duty, but does not require of you. Dylan, if I ask you, if I, if you tell me you're going to the lab, what do you mean? We got to cook. We got to cook hot combos is what I was going to say. Uh, because... I got to cook, Marty. <laughs> because, so it, it's a fighting game term. Uh, the lab usually refers to training mode, where you kind of, you just take your character and you see what kind of cool things you can do with them. And so what does that mean, Dylan? Well, okay, so in fighting games, characters have different attack animations. So, you know, you have your punches, your kicks... Uh, your jabs, your uppercuts, all that stuff. And what a combo is in a fighting game is basically when you do, say, a punch, and then when you, the character does the animation for that punch, you know, they fully extend their arm, there are frames of animation where you can put in a different input, and the character will instantly go from that punch to a kick. It's hard to explain if you've never played fighting games, or if, you know, if I had a video to explain this, that would help. Yeah, the the basic the basic concept is that animation is broken up into frames and there are in the action of like animating a punch there are then all of those frames of like returning to the default stance that yeah. don't actually need to be there. So you can like go directly from that first punch into the startup frames for another move and you're making things more efficient by removing time that otherwise you aren't doing anything. Yeah, the the cool thing about, like, fighting games is that, you know, you can enjoy them casually, although, you know, depending on who you fight, uh, you might want to go to the lab anyway. <laughs> <laughs> cough, cough, Dylan. <laughs> uh, like, I mean, alternatively, you know, arcade mode's pretty tough, so, like, there is kind of a high bar of entry, but, you know, once you have, like, a basic understanding of your character, you know, you can casually enjoy fighting games. However... There is a very high ceiling, and I think the cool thing about fighting games is that, you know, as I was just talking about, you can learn how to cancel animations, you can get a better idea for, like, what attacks um, leave your opponent vulnerable. There's a lot of... <laughs> on on another podcast we were on, Nintendo Main, uh, Chris introduced himself as drowning in frame data wilson yep <laughs> <laughs> and that's you know it's a it's a weird thing to explain but uh essentially like that is kind of what the training mode in fighting games are where you are not only hypothetically testing yourself against other uh other opponents you're also seeing what your character can do and what you can do with your character and there's you know to tie it back into the theme of our pot uh, of our podcast like there's like this kind of rehearsal to it where if you if you want you can be able to whip out a combo without thinking about it because you have rehearsed it so repeatedly to yeah, such an extent i've i've talked about this a little bit before but the the goal for a lot of actors i'm not going to make sweeping generalization about everyone because people get into this art form for different reasons and with different strategies but like my goal and what I've spoken to a lot of people about is that re the rehearsal process is to get you to the point where like all of the things that you have to do all of the boring stuff of like the words that you have to say and the place you have to be on stage 
becomes second nature and you can do it without thinking so that all of your thought and focus can be on how you're how you're reacting and what's happening in the moment and what like in this particular performance not even like what you've rehearsed but like that the actor you're playing opposite is doing something a little bit different that's giving it a different energy and being able to lean into that and that's kind of what like top tier fighting game players who like know the game backwards and forwards that's what they're doing they know all of the best things to do in any given moment so all they're doing is watching for the opportunity and guessing as to which of those is going to best fit the moment oh the characters in the air hit them with the anti-air oh the characters far away hit them with this fireball maybe it'll stun them then get in close and do a combo just there are these different things that you can factor that you can you know once you practice enough you can do second nature but is that required to enjoy the game no. i don't i don't think so no like you know it's not like it's not like there isn't a single player mode to um to street fighter although it was kind of shitty when street fighter 5 first launched yeah. but let's let's put that over in the corner real quick <laughs> um <laughs> speaking as someone who really enjoys playing fighting games with friends and is really pretty bad at most fighting games <laughs> Like, I think they're cool. My opinion of them is very much like they are they are fascinating little, like, game engines to look at and to, like, yeah. figure out pieces of. And I, I, I will spend time in the lab enough to, like, okay, I can kind of get this and then, like, play Dylan and get my teeth kicked in slightly less fast or maybe even win sometimes. Hey, you, you're pretty good at Dragon Ball Fighters. I don't want to hear that from you. I was pretty good at Dragon Ball Fighters. And oh, then I'm like, rusty too. Uh, and then a couple days would go by, and I'd be like, "Wait, how do I hit the buttons again?" <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's a hard game for, at least for me, it was a hard game for things to stick. Yeah, but all this is to say, like, fighting games are kind of a great example of like you can, as a complete beginner, pick up a fighting game and jump into like the arcade mode or the story mode and like play at a level that is comfortable for you. And there are difficulty settings for like exhibition matches if you just want to like play against an AI controlled character to figure out how the game works you can like ramp that difficulty up and down to your heart's content yeah but that does not prevent like the fighting game community from existing that does not prevent there being huge high level tournaments with like thousands of dollars on the line for the best of the best people in the world to compete in on fucking ESPN (laughs) ESPN 8 the Ocho except in fucking real life um (laughs) Like, it's a really cool, like, fighting games are a really cool microcosm for, like, a game that, yeah, they require a little bit of input. Yeah, like, you're going to pick it up and you're not going to be great right away, but the game accommodates that. And the game has a learning curve built into it. Some fighting games have auto combos built in. For example, uh, Dragon Ball Fighter, as we mentioned earlier, that has auto combos. Persona 4 Arena has, because these are both fighting games that are, you know, in addition to being well-made fighting games by the same company now that I think about it. Uh, They are also games that are tied to franchises that might not have fans in the fighting game community. Especially fucking Persona, a turn-based, story-heavy RPG. The skills you learn in Persona 4 ain't going to transfer too well to a fighting game. Yeah, but even then, like, they they make concessions for, you know, very entry-level beginner players. Yep, and that's great. And that's great. <laughs> um, oh, so uh, you were talking about map making earlier. Yes. Um, that that made me think of, you know, you can technically do this for all RPGs, but I find that it's a lot easier to do with first-person RPGs. So it, it reminded me of uh, playing the Master System Fantasy Star, where dungeons are from this first-person 
it's it's like wizardry, which yeah. I know what I know you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. But uh, uh, Etrian Odyssey for the 3DS also has that, and it even has the added concession. Maybe not concession, but like it encourages you to draw maps because I believe, and I haven't played Etrian Odyssey, so forgive me if I'm wrong, but you can draw maps on the touchscreen. The game encourages you to do that because it is now something that is mechanically in, within the system of the game. There is something almost therapeutic to map making as you play, but I don't fault modern games for just having a map auto-generate as you play. There, Yeah, no, there, there's this extra layer of tension and immersion in plotting out maps by yourself, but I think it is important to point out that like, just because that is its own cool little thing, it is not the standard anymore, and... You know, even if, like, you did want to play, there there is recently a re-release of Fantasy Star for the Switch. You know, you have the option of playing with a map that auto-generates. You can also play the game in its original difficulty, where you don't have that map. And, you know, it's there for you if you want it, but it's not mandatory. It's not something you absolutely have to have. Yeah, like, things like that are great because, yeah, they require a little bit of effort on the part of the game designers, like, and I'm not gonna, I don't want to, like, sell that short. I have no idea how much effort things like that require to add in. Yeah, I, I want to throw out real quick that, like, again, I to tie back to the first half of the episode, like, I don't know what went into making Sekiro. I don't necessarily know how much work it would be for the devs to make it more accessible or easier, I do know that, like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. I am of the opinion, just, you know, working in an entirely different field, but being someone who makes art that he wants people to see, effort's worth it. Like, yeah. I don't know what the kind of budget they were under. I don't know what kind of time constraints they were under. I don't know what would be involved. But I'm of the opinion that it is worth effort to make to allow more people to experience the stories they want to experience. I guess, uh, more importantly, I don't think it's worth the effort shutting down people who would like more. Yeah, Like, absolutely. more options. The one other place that, like, and this is something that I love, I love very much. As an example, let me, let me dive into a game that we've talked about before in briefness, uh, The Witcher 3. Okay. The Witcher 3 is a very fun game. One of the main conceits of the game is that you are a monster hunter. A witcher is someone who is uniquely capable at hunting monsters. And so, several of the side missions involve going on hunts for particularly dangerous monsters. As you go through the game and you fight things, you develop uh, a bestiary. A yeah. area of your menu that you can go to to refer to the kinds of monsters that you have faced. And sometimes you will get you will find like incomplete em entries for monsters you have yet to face out in the world. And these, in addition to just being lore, like they'll have like, you know, research style notes about this monster and its habitat and what it do. It'll also have info that you as a player can use to know how to best take on these challenging foes. And like what kinds of potions they're weak to or resistant towards, what kinds of spells are going to be particularly effective. And, like, the existence of this, and you see it in a lot of RPGs, uh, but The Witcher was, like, an easy example that came to my mind, is it's useful no matter what, but by building this in, that creates a space for them to make additional, more difficult choices later on for the people that want to pursue them. By which I mean, like... This is something that 
if you're having trouble on the default difficulty setting or on like a lower difficulty setting, this is great because it'll tell you what to do to get through these challenges. It'll give you some extra hints and give you an extra edge against some of the monsters that you're facing. But it also gives them the ability to have higher difficulty settings or have very difficult side quests because they can ramp the difficulty up while still giving you information about how to level that back down if you want to. I think I, like, having not played The Witcher, I think I get that. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you I'm run that about by me in... one more time? You can even edit it out. I yeah, just want like, to make sure I got it all. By giving you a piece of paper that basically says, like, the sea hag is weak to your igni spell, but will... And, like, if you apply a greater poison of slowness to your blade, that's going to be especially effective. Not only does that mean that when you encounter a sea hag in the course of the main story, if you need the little extra edge, you've got that info, so you can, like, you have the option of giving yourself that edge when you need it. But it also means that they can add side content later on of, like, there's a particularly powerful sea hag if you want to go fight it with the knowledge that the player is going to be able to bring these special, like they can even make that fight, you know, almost impossible through just skill alone. Mm -hmm. Not impossible because that's not good game design, (laughs) but they can make that a really challenging fight for the people that just want to take it square on while Mm -hmm. also knowing that the players have information necessary to bring that challenge level down a little bit. I'm always a fan of dynamic difficulty. Uh, There's a great, episode of extra credits from a while ago about interestingly from soft's own dark souls 2 about how in that game there is an easy mode and it's called playing a uh, playing a ranged spellcaster like the dark souls games and i think that's one of the things about like the dark souls games you can make choices that make the gameplay either easier or more intuitive to you because there's so much customization about what your character can do yeah Sekiro doesn't have that. You can also call in for help. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of things that the Dark Souls games did that provided a slightly more flexible difficulty. Yeah. That Sekiro doesn't, and I think that might be why this conversation came back up with Sekiro specifically. Yeah, so I I actually, I think I'm going to go into the opposite direction with uh, the bestiary talk. Do it. Chris, you have seen me. Recently, I've been playing a difficulty modded version of Final Fantasy IX. It's true. You've been very frustrated. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, the, the big thing, and... Dylan, why the fuck are you doing this to yourself? The big thing is, <laughs> um, I have been playing through the game on this difficulty mod, and I have never played Final Fantasy IX before. I have played and loved 4 and 6, the Super Nintendo games. Um, I've played 7, and then, like, you know, a bunch of other Final Fantasy games I've either played that briefly, or I watched my brother play through the bulk of them. So I've never actually played through Final Fantasy IX. This is my first time going through Final Fantasy IX, and the reason why I modded this game is because uh, there's a late game character that doesn't join the party in the original version but the mod adds her um and so like that was that was a huge reason another reason was uh because like the last couple times i tried playing final fantasy 9 it just kind of felt slow to me so i wanted to add a little bit of spice to uh shake things up if you will but yeah no this difficulty mod's hard uh so at times i would say it's unfairly hard due in part to the fact that like final fantasy 9 was designed in a way where like the party can change on you at any second, and if you've never played the game before, you might not know to prepare for those moments, so haha, I shot, my, I shot myself in the foot. <laughs> but anyway, what I wanted to get to was, um, 
because the game is so difficult, I have had to spend a lot more time kind of learning and preparing for each enemy type I come across to the point where I have a, I, I haven't written anything down, but I have a mental bestiary of any given area I spend enough time in where it's like, okay, I know that these enemies have about this much HP, which means that if I give the kill to this character over here, he can learn their skills. Or I know that these enemies carry these items on them. I know I will need these items for the boss fight coming up. So I will, you know, and I, I have to like very deliberately like spend more time paying attention to these enemies than I think the game ever intended me to. And so, you know, in its own way, that is that extra layer of challenge that I would not recommend on anyone who just wants to play <laughs> a fun Final Fantasy game and enjoy the story and the characters. Like, on the flip side, my brother's playing through the Switch version. Um, both the PC version and the Switch version allow you to uh, instantly jump to level 99, and you can speed fights up, and you can get infinite HP and MP and all of that different stuff. So he's been playing through the game Basically, one-shotting every boss fight he <laughs> comes across. God mode. We started the... We both started a new file about roughly the same time. Um, we have about roughly the same play time, and Jordan's, like, made twice, maybe even four times the amount <laughs> of progress I have. But we are both enjoying the game in our own way. He's having fun with the story of the characters and exploring the environments, and I am having fun doing the same thing, but also, like, very carefully considering... My abilities, the enemies I come across, how to efficiently take them all out, how to officially, not officially, efficiently level up my party in a way that allows me to still get through the game at a decent pace. And I think the fact that, you know, ignoring the fact that I'm playing a difficulty mod, I feel like the fact that this game can be enjoyed in both of those ways is something that should be, you should strive for that. Yeah, like I, it's the same deal I said earlier about like I loved playing Iconoclast on the regular difficulty setting and like gritting my teeth and fuming through a couple of late game moments. I'm also loving playing through it again on the story mode and just getting to spend more time in this world and like experiencing these characters. Yeah. There are a lot of ways to like games. There are, one might argue, as many ways to like games as there are people who like games. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what... I'd. I don't feel like that should be a hard thing to say. Yeah. A week or so back, Chris proposed the idea for this episode, and we wanted it to be kind of to talk about, like, you know, these are things that the game doesn't ask you to do, but you do it out of love for the game, because, like, it makes the game, it enriches the experience for you in some way. And so, you know, it, it kind of took a turn because of recent developments, but I, I think what is important is that, you know, it is possible to be so into a game that you learn perfect parrying and um, draw your own maps draw your own maps and you know like you know every enemy type like the back of your hand that is really fun and really engaging and i love those things and i wouldn't wish like i wouldn't wish for any company to take those features out or take the incentive for learning those features out that being said i don't necessarily agree with the idea that like just because people aren't into all those extra things basically those things shouldn't be mandatory to enjoy a game exactly is my personal belief 
I think um, that the depth that that affords and the fact that like those are things you can do and those are things that will be rewarded is awesome. Very rarely have I ever picked up a game and would I have been willing to do that from the word go? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with leaving your game in a place where everyone can give it a try and enjoy it and then, you know, work their way up to a higher level of difficulty if they so choose. So Chris, I have a I have a I have a proposition for the title of this okay. episode. Chris, we promised we wouldn't talk about Sekiro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's fair. <laughs> I had fun. I had fun too. And like if only to make our talking about this, you know, to sink in why we felt like we needed to weigh in on this. I think it comes down to like we're artists. Like we also make work and like all I ever want from like a play I'm in or a podcast I make or whatever it is is for people to be able to enjoy it and listen to it and experience it. And yeah. I can't imagine that the people making games feel any differently, which is why it's wild to me that the people who love this stuff don't want other people to be able to love it. Let people I, love things. Yeah, I don't think the environmental artist wants people to not play the game he worked on because... You know the they parry didn't work is hard too enough tough. to experience my vista. Yeah, like you know, a bunch of pe- a bunch of different people come together to make games, and there are a bunch of different elements of it to appreciate. Um, and so even if you know, even if the story of Sekiro is so closely tied to its difficulty that the only way to truly appreciate it is if you overcome it like i'll take that face value let's say that's true but what about that guy who just wants to see all these beautifully like lovingly rendered japanese vistas yeah what about what about the guy who loves like sengoku jidai era japanese history and just wants to see this game's take on that history and mythology but doesn't have the time to play a game where the primary loop is dying over and over again (laughs) So that's that's yeah. all. Takeaway point. Takeaway point. Yeah, life is too short to care that much about how other people have fun. Be kind to each other. We love you. We love you. Uh, and with that, even, even if you think that guy over there cheated himself, it was a hollow victory. It was a hollow victory. Okay, that's fine, dude. I still love you. Be kind. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that'll do it for us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to us totally not talk about the Sekiro controversy for an oh, hour. what? There was a uh, Sekiro controversy? Don't worry about it. Um, okay. I, I've completely forgotten about it. What? We've what? been backstage gaming. Thank you so much for listening. Chris, what we, were we talking about for the last hour? I'm scared. <laughs> we had a few. We went through a fugue state. Um, <laughs> As always, you can find us at our website, bsgpod.com. That is where you will find our episodes. You will find a contact link. You will find bios for me and Dylan. You can also find our show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Stitcher, and in the Google Play Store. If you like what we're doing, feel free to drop a like and a or a, a review and a rating in iTunes and help us climb those charts. Dylan, social media me now. All right. Um, actually, first before that, Chris, did you know that From Software released a new game last month? <laughs> Dylan has been I'm still in a fugue state no. for, uh, for anyway, weeks. I was actually saying that because I had to open up the credit sheet in our Google Drive. Anyway, ha ha ha, I tricked you. Our oh, social no. media, we have Facebook. We also have Twitter. Our handle is at BSG underscore cast. You can also check us out on YouTube. And if you like what we talk about, if you hate what we talk about, if you think Sekiro should be hard and that we're just a bunch of 
shitholes, you can talk about us <laughs> with the hashtag casuals. <laughs> you can talk about us with the hashtag BSGpod. Um, also, big, big ups for Brendan French. He did the key art for this wonderful, wonderful podcast. I think it's wonderful. If you like his art, you can check him out at brennanfrench.squarespace.com. That is B-R-E-N-N-E-N hyphen French.squarespace.com. You can also check him out on his Instagram page at instagram.com slash brennanfrencharts. Thank you also to BioQuery, our good friend and the incredible musician behind our theme song, Dot Sound Radio Volume 1 Instrumentality. You can find him at his SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash BioQuery. That's B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y. You can also find him on Spotify. He's got a new EP out called Posthuman Angst. It's super fucking cool. It's great workout music, great running music. Springs come and get that hard body back. Um, yeah, yeah. One more time. Uh, please feel free to go check us out at our Patreon, patreon.com slash bsgpod. And if you can, if you like what we're doing, if you can afford it, don't do anything you can't afford. I do that all the time. Uh, consider throwing a few bucks our way. It'll help us with website hosting. It'll help us get some more projects off the ground. And it would be super duper appreciated. We've got some rewards that we think will hopefully be meaningful for you all listed over there. So give Every that a check out. Counts. And as always, thank you for listening to Backstage Gaming. We'll talk to you again next week thank you for letting us into your home your car your uh this doesn't work because it's we're very not bob ross anyway goodbye everyone the fuck it was this. a hollow this victory was it was a hollow victory <laughs> goodbye